comes out of the dog pile and gets down where it gets real nasty, boy. It's manipulation through intimidation. All right, boy, everyone, strip search. All these jiggling pecs and all these show muscles. Well, let me in a, a humble moment give you a capsule synopsis. Go get it, you I'm out of this. I appreciate your concern, Deborah McMichael. You look just terrific tonight. Oh, by the way, April Fools. Things on the on the chain. Things on the chain. That's the way Bruce Lee beat up people with. I am the best wrestler in Mexico. Somebody holler pyro or something. And I'm really, really upset about that. I don't know how this thing got this far out of whack here. What do you call Judge. You have lost it. Lost what? Your mind. Hello, Nitromaniacs, and welcome to the Nitromania podcast. My name is Adam. I am your host, and this is the show where we're going to show you a music video from four years ago because it tangentially relates to a story we're trying to tell. This is the 62nd edition of the Nitromania podcast, which makes this the official episode of Indonesia. Last week on the show, we marched ever onwards towards World War III. We got some matches that didn't seem to mean anything. The Faces of Fear demanded to be added to the tag title match at World War III. And, as I mentioned, we watched an awesome music video. That song is still stuck in my head. Speaking of last week, our dear friend and official statistician, Philip Goad, did confirm my suspicions from last time, saying, main event was taped before Nitro, but doesn't air until December 12th. Because what is more WCW, ladies and gentlemen, than taping a semifinal match before a corresponding first round match, and then not airing it for a fucking month? Uh, and speaking of the march towards World War III, this is the go-home episode for World War III, which means if you stay tuned until the end, I will tell you who will be joining me on the program next time to cover that massive battle royal and the Nitro right after. So let's dive right in without any further hesitation. It is Monday, November 18th, 1996, and we are live from the Civic Center in Florence, South Carolina. We were here last for episode number four of Nitro, where absolutely nothing happened. Uh, since then, the ill-fated in-your-house Beware of Dog emanated from this arena. I believe this is the original edition and not the Tuesday redo because of the power outage. This is the last time we'll be here on this show, and the only other televised wrestling event is a Friday Night Smackdown from December 2006. But tonight we start with something new and different. Hall and Nash with chairs having demolished two dudes in pink trunks that I assume are high voltage and were presumably in the last dark match before we went live. Hall and Nash yell at Larry and Tony. They threaten Tony's well-being. Oh, there's another team in the ring too, it turns out. I have no idea who they are. Scott talks about how the faces of fear don't live up to their reputation as Nash flicks Tony in the head like a high school bully. Then it's time for another edition of my favorite podcast game, getting it out of the way early this time around, Is It Racist? Will you tell those two islanders, come on out here, and we'll slap that coconut breath out of you. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. But given that it's Meng... I am going to hope, at least for Scott's sake, that he asked for permission in the back before 
saying that on live television. Scott says that if the faces of fear won't come out to face them, they will go back to get them in the back. So we follow the outsiders to the back, where they are blindsided by Meng and the Barbarian. They brawl as we go to break. When we come back, Tony welcomes us to Nitro, explains what a dark match is, and then shows us what happened, or at least shows us still frames of what happened. They keep on a still store of Hall, about to hit Sags with a chair, and we listen to what just happened. I still don't know who that other team was, because the Nasty Boys definitely weren't out there when they showed the, uh, the, the decimation in the ring. Tony then gets pissed off and leaves, because Larry didn't stand up for him. Please. Please. Please don't let Larry call the first half of the show alone. Please. Your opening match tonight is the debuting La Parca taking on Juventud Guerrera. They start the match with Juventud just standing on the top rope. I'm not sure that's legal, considering he technically wasn't in the ring when the referee rang the bell. Thankfully, Tanay comes out to help Larry not struggle like a freshly caught fish on commentary. La Parca is wearing this kind of bodysuit thing. The front of it looks like a face. And it most reminds me of that grasshopper dude from Space Ghost and the Brack Show, whose name I am completely blanking on right now. Shit, that's going to bother me. <laughs> Meanwhile, Juventud gets a two on a springboard Hurricane Runner from the top. He then almost completely misses on a springboard moonsault, nearly crippling himself. Is it, is it Strax? I'm going to have to Google this after the match. Don't email me. Uh, Zorak! That's his fucking name. God, Strax is the potato from Doctor Who. Zorak. Anyway, Hooventude hits a beautiful missile dropkick but only gets two. Tanay tells us that the hot rumor backstage today is that Piper will be here tonight, and we know that Hogan will be here as well. Laparka blocks a spinning Hurricane Rana off the top, hitting a corkscrew senton once Hooventude returns to his feet and pins Hooventude for three. Of note, I completely lost track of how many times Larry called Juventud Guerrero instead of Guerrera. They they are different names, Larry. That's why they're spelled differently. When we come back from break, thankfully, Tanay is still on commentary. He sends us to a video promo for The Ultimo Dragon. The graphics on this video say Ultimate Dragon because why have consistency? Enter the Ultimo Dragon and all his titles. He is accompanied by Sonny Ono and a few more titles. His opponent is the WCW Cruiserweight Champion, Dean Malenko, uh, who has held the belt for 22 days at this point. Rey Mysterio cuts a very bland promo in a Goldman box as the bell rings. This is a title match. The winner faces Psychosis at World War III. Dragon overshoots a moonsault and gets locked in the cloverleaf. Sonny hops on the apron. Dean flips Sonny into the ring. Dragon charges and Dean flips a dragon out of the ring. And we have an over-the-top rope disqualification. Fuck off. The worst rule is the one that only applies when they need it to. It's like if your manager only made you use PTO to take vacation days if their manager was in the office that day to watch you fill out paperwork. This Saturday night, the Faces of Fear versus Cyclope and Galaxy. Lord Steven Regal defends the TV title against Dean Malenko, Chris Jericho, Arn Anderson versus Bunkhouse Buck, Jeff Jarrett versus Mike Enos, is an Enos Plus, the Taskmaster, and the New World Order. Then we go back to last Monday for Harlem Heat versus the amazing French Canadians. It's literally just Parker and Sherry backing into each other in the ring, and then Sherry not going after Parker until Booker has grabbed her to hold her back. 
This Sunday, they will have another match, but if Harlem Heat win, Sister Sherry gets five minutes in the ring with Colonel Parker. Enter the amazing French Canadians, accompanied by Legionnaire Robert Parker. He is dressed ridiculously. They are facing the American males. American males. American males. As the match begins, Tene and Larry talk about the Battle Royal at World War III, saying it is a chance for someone who has been here for years and never gotten a chance at the World Heavyweight title to win that chance. Yeah, sure, Mike. I'm sure Kenny Chaos has a chance of winning the World War III Battle Royal. <sighs> Jacques takes a break to do some calisthenics, then attacks Riggs when he looks confused. Then we get more miscommunication between Bagwell and Riggs, or at least what they want to say is miscommunication, as Bagwell really just comes into the ring for no other reason than to run into Riggs off a leapfrog. Bagwell gets a hot tag off an actual miscommunication by the amazing French Canadians, and he cleans house. Scotty then knees Rougeau into Bagwell, their heads collide, and the Canadians win. We go to break, as the males argue. When we come back, a dude in what looks like a knockoff NWO shirt is playing with Hogan and Piper Thumb Wrestlers. We get a promo for the new WCWWrestling.com now that they've gained control back from those evil hackers, the NWO. Then enter Hugh Morris. We are 40 minutes into the show here, probably closer to 45 or 50 with the commercial breaks and whatnot. And Larry has already driven his new Ed Wood Hulk Hogan nickname into the fucking ground. Uh, Hugh's opponent tonight is Lex Luger, so this should be fun. They've given Lex Kane's pyro for when he flexes in the ring. So, apparently, Lex's titties have the power to summon fire. As the match begins, we get a Goldman from Arn Anderson. Then Tanae says the pay-per-view is on Saturday. It's not. Then he says it again, saying Flair will be in the building this Saturday in Baltimore. Is tonight talking about an event in Baltimore the night before World War III? Because World War III is definitely on Sunday. Larry says in regards to Luger's clotheslines that the third time's the charm, which is great, except that all three of Luger's clotheslines knocked Morris down. Luger gets the torture rack half on Morris, and Randerson calls for the bell. Luger then argues with him that he didn't have the move on, so that shouldn't have been the end of the match. Dude, you won. Shut up. Gene is in the ring with Luger now. Gene is basically killing time with Luger, talking about World War III, so that Sting can make his way to ringside, struggle over the barrier, and get into the ring. Sting gives Luger a baseball bat and leaves. Everyone is confused. Luger refuses to answer Gene's questions following this, and Gene sends us to break. We come back with ten seconds left on the dynamite, and there's your needless pyro. Bischoff welcomes us to hour two. We pan the ugly fucks in the front row as Bischoff sets up a clip from Saturday night to Tony talking to Nick Patrick and his slimy lawyer. Then Teddy and Jericho holler at Patrick and the sleaze ball as well. Thankfully, they leave in the nice awkward part where Teddy Long forgets his cue and Tony mumbles, what are we doing here? Teddy says that Jericho can beat Nick Patrick with one arm tied behind his back. Lawyer Boy calls that a verbal binding contract, which I don't think is a thing. And apparently that will happen at World War III. Great. Enter Johnny Grunge. He is facing Chris Jericho tonight. And we have our first instance of WWE dubbing in Jericho's WWE theme over his WCW theme. In researching this, I also discovered that they dubbed over the Public Enemy theme, too, but who gives a shit about Public Enemy? 
What is so bizarre about this to me is that they've used Jericho's actual WCW theme on previous episodes of Nitro. So I don't understand why they would dub it over now. Also, why the fuck is Johnny Grunge wrestling solo? Have Rocco Rock and their manager Table both turned their backs on him? Jesus fuck, Nick Patrick is somewhere watching this match in a black button-up shirt, black sunglasses, and his neck brace. It's almost as though he's evil. Grunge brings a chair into the ring, sits Jericho in the chair after an atomic drop, and then just clotheslines him out of the chair. So, that happened. Oh, and there's Table. He has not abandoned his client. He was just hanging out in the aisle. Johnny sets up Table in the ring as the commentators explain that this wouldn't be a disqualification yet because he hasn't used the table yet. Johnny grabs the chair and goes to the top rope. Jericho avoids this move, of course, and uh, Jericho pins Grunge with a missile dropkick. Basically, what we learned here is that Johnny Grunge is a goddamn moron. Gene is with Jericho. Gene mentions that Nick Patrick was watching on just now. Teddy interrupts immediately. He regrets getting Chris into this match on Sunday and apologizes. Jericho does not want apologies. He wants revenge. Back from break for the desk, Danae is still finding his way up to the booth from his spot at ringside during hour one, apparently. They continue to talk about the rumors that Roddy Piper will be here tonight, and here's the NWO theme. It is Hogan's team, which is himself, Vincent, Ted, and Elizabeth. They head for commentary and Bobby Bales, because he is smart. Hogan demands that Eric tell the world that he's a bigger superstar than Roddy, Roddy Piper, so I guess that's where Sal got it from. Eric barely complies with Hogan's wishes. Look, if I have to listen to this dick gargling, you also have to listen to this dick gargling. Yo, 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 it's time for Hollywood, brother. And Mr. Bischoff, you being the foundation of the WCW, the NWO, courtesy of Hollywood, is here to... Get the family record straight. Tell everybody out there that I'm the biggest superstar and that I'm a bigger icon than the rowdy, red-headed Roddy Piper. Well, I, tell them. I think some of these people may disagree with that. I, mean, I said tell them that I'm a bigger icon than Roddy Roddy Piper. All right, Hollywood, if, if it makes you feel better, if that's what you want to hear... <laughs> You're, you're a bigger icon than Roddy Told Roddy. you. Hey, now tell him that Roddy Roddy Piper is scared to death of Hollywood and he wouldn't dare show his face around here. Tell him. I mean, not everybody would agree with that. Tell him that Roddy Piper is afraid of Hollywood. Okay, okay. If that's what you want to hear. Hollywood, if that's what it takes to get you off this Now, set, Bischoff! He's afraid. Tell him that if Hollywood stood on his bank account and Piper stood on his bank account, he'd look like a midget at high noon standing next to me. Tell him that Hollywood is a hundred times richer than Piper. Whatever you want, Hollywood. You are a hundred times richer than Rowdy Roddy Piper. Whatever you want. Does it make you happy? That's what we wanted to hear. Can now have- that everybody knows that Hollywood and the NWO is running the show. 
Carry on. Thank you very much. I feel I need to mention that Elizabeth spent the entire time at the desk standing hard screen right, not doing a goddamn thing. Gene is in the entrance again. Out comes DDP. He is interrupted by the other NWO team, Hall, Nash, X-Pac, and the Giant. Apparently, DDP continues to not get it. Giant says they should just beat the shit out of him. They continue to speak in code. It is also annoying. Nash seems to make some kind of veiled threat. The fuck did I just watch? Enter Bobby Eaton. I cannot even describe the look here. Please... Uh, please go check this out at about the one hour and three minute mark of this episode. Jesus H Christ. Uh, Bobby is facing off against Jeff Jarrett. I've seen sacks of manure that move better than Bobby Eaton in this match. The crowd goes crazy as Jarrett locks on the figure four for the submission victory. This of course has nothing to do with Jarrett, but because Ric Flair has entered in the grandpa-est of grandpa sweaters and his arm in a sling. Gene is in the ring. Jeff talks about the Giant. Gene tries to ask him about Sting last week, and Jeff just keeps talking about the Giant. Then, Ric Flair. Ric Flair's about. Flair endorses Jeff again. It's so weird. Also, we get a shot of Sting looking unimpressed somewhere undisclosed. As we widen out, we see he's actually in a catwalk this week. Back from break, just in time for the 1-800-COLLECT on the road report. Lee Marshall is in Norfolk, Virginia. He invites everyone in Norfolk to come to World War III, which is in Baltimore. Then says he's at a nitro party and the fans are wondering what syllable has the accent in the weasel chant. Bobby fires back with this amazing reply. Bobby, the fans around here want to know if the emphasis is on the first or second syllable of a weasel chant. That's our 1-800-COLLECT road report from the beautiful Virginia waterfront. I'm Lee Marshall for 1-800-COLLECT. <laughs> hey, walk east as far as you can till you feel water in your mouth and then keep going. Jimmy Hart then enters with Big Bubba, who is facing Jim Powers, who is without Teddy Long, so Nick Patrick doesn't have to ref this match. Eric tries to tell us that Jim Powers is much faster and much bigger than Bubba, which can be proven false just by looking at the goddamn screen. Bubba is bent at the waist and is still standing taller than Jim Powers. Bischoff is now saying that there is no truth to the rumor that Piper will be here tonight, so expect him in your main event chat segment. Bubba wins with a... um... Bubman slam? Jimmy tells us that that was for the dungeon, just in case the theme song didn't give it away. Back from break for your main event, Chris Benoit versus Eddie Guerrero. Please don't put Kevin Sullivan in a box. Please. Please. I know what you're feeling. That burning in your loins. Eddie Guerrero's entrance begins with a close-up shot of a strobe light that is not turned on. Interesting choice. Benoit gets the crossface in and Guerrero immediately gets the rope so that we can get Kevin Sullivan in a box. Mm. Thankfully, he is not speaking in a low whisper or being creepy tonight. He just talks about how Benoit was the linchpin that caused the downfall of the team up between the dungeon and the horsemen. I am now extremely confused. As Tanae points out that Benoit may be at a disadvantage in the World War III Battle Royal, being only 24 hours removed from this battle with Arn Anderson. What the fuck is happening on Saturday? And why are you promoting it instead of the pay-per-view on Sunday? I am so fucking lost here. To the point where I looked it up. It is just, it's a fucking house show. <laughs> It's a house show that draws 6,500 people the night before World War III. 
They have been talking about this goddamn Baltimore show, this rematch between Kevin Sullivan and Chris Benoit, so much that I thought it was at the pay-per-view. But no. World War III, as they have said, as Lee Marshall said, is, is the next fucking night in Norfolk. What the hell, WCW? Uh, Benoit manages to roll through a Hurricane Rana into a Sunset Flimp pin for three. He obviously has all the momentum going into this meaningless house show match in Baltimore a day before World War III. Eric then promises a very important statement when we come back from break. He is in the ring. Here is his very important statement. All right, thank you. Thank you. Welcome back across the country. And I want to say something. Not only the fans watching at home, but everybody here in the arena. First of all, thank you for coming out. I'm glad you joined us tonight. But I want to apologize for what Hulk Hogan made me do earlier here. And I want everybody to know that we're going to do everything in our power at WCW to try to get Roddy Piper to sign for the match to take on Hulk Hogan. We know you want to see it. The mail, email, faxes I've been getting in my office, everybody at WCW knows we're going to try and continue to reach his attorneys, his agents, his managers. We've been trying, and it's been tough. But we will, despite anything that... Any... Of course, that is Roddy Piper's music that you hear at the end there. Piper enters in a No Fear t-shirt and Ronda Rousey's jacket. Eric looks incredibly uncomfortable. Let's find out why. It's nice to be back. You know what? I have come here to tell some truth. I have never heard so many lies in my entire life other than when I was saying them. I want to tell you something first. It's my honor to be back here because, you know, I got six kids. My first child was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, in the Presbyterian Hospital. I told you, with Hogan, while I was taking on all comers in a garage, he was playing at Tootsie's Bar and Grill. You know that highway that goes from Charlotte to Columbia? While they were building it, I was driving it, being chased by the cops. I am king of the frat house. Just a little peel. I understand somebody's calling me a coward. Saying that I'm afraid. You know, there's a guy. His name is LL Cool J. He's a rapping kind of guy. He wrote a song that said, You slapped Roddy Piper and you didn't get a hassle. You're a liar. Come here to talk about jerks and liars. <laughs> First of all, how you doing? Having a nice time? I'm sorry? I've had better. You've had better? <laughs> Such a great guy. <laughs> uh, 
saw you. You flew all the way to Portland to get this fight. You talked to my managers to get this fight. <laughs> What'd you fly? First class coach, how'd you fly? First class coach, what was it? First class coach, how'd you fly? Uh, what airlines? What airlines? I don't... <laughs> And you come on up to my ranch. When you come up to my ranch, tell me, is the road crooked or is the road straight? Tell me, is the road crooked? I don't remember. I don't remember. Tell me something. Feel your position. You are... I do feel the need to point out that you heard there Roddy starts that promo by saying he has six kids and that the first one was born in Charlotte. Wikipedia says Roddy has four kids... And Googling seems to indicate that his daughter, Ariel, is his oldest. She was born in 1985. And her official website states that she was born in fucking Oregon. Roddy Piper, always a worker. Also, did Roddy call Eric a piece of shit right there at the end before the giant grabbed him? Yeah, so that big crowd roar at the end was the giant sliding in the ring and grabbing Roddy by his trapezius. This is quickly followed by the rest of the NWO, or I guess the Hogan team of the NWO as uh, they enter the ring uh, and subdue Piper Hogan enters the ring, hugs Bischoff. And then this now, now that everybody realizes who everybody's working for. I mean, my God, this guy here was the foundation of the WCW. Now, he works for the NWO. I'll tell you what, stand him up, but watch him. Watch him real close. Hey, you know something, Piper? You're a loser fighting a losing battle. You have never been anything in the wrestling business. And until you wrestled me, Piper, nobody even knew your name. Now, Rowdy Roddy Piper is such a coward, he won't even sign a contract to wrestle me. And since you won't get in the ring with me, Piper, you will never be anything, my man. I think it's time to teach you a little respect, Piper. So after Hogan says that line about respect, Piper tries to break free. He's held back by security. This happens a few times. Bobby and Tanay express their shock and dismay that Bischoff has aligned with the NWO. I didn't mean to make that rhyme. I just noticed that. And then Piper grabs a mic and says he'll be in Norfolk on Sunday with a contract in his teeth. And he tells Hogan to kiss his ass as we fade to black. So yes, the go-home show for World War III 1996 is when it's revealed that Eric Bischoff is a member of the NWO and that he has been lying this entire month or so about trying to get Roddy Piper to sign the contract for a match against Hulk Hogan. I like it. I, I actually enjoyed what they did with the NWO this week. We start the show hot with them having taken out a few guys. Eric actually clarified later that they cut in five minutes early because of what Hall and Nash were doing. So I hope you are already watching TNT and not planning on just flipping over after Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy were over, or you would have missed it entirely, except for those fun still shots that they showed at the beginning. We then had no NWO for the bulk of the show. 
There was that small interaction with DDP and that small bit as the desk, uh, again, as they continued to tease DDP joining or not joining. But that was it. They didn't stand in the crowd and leer. They weren't lurking backstage or broadcasting from a hotel room. And then at the end, we get the big reveal of Bischoff. And the thing about Bischoff being in the NWO is that it actually makes a few different things from the past few months make more sense. Like why he would agree to those night of demands from Ted DiBiase in order to get war games to happen. Or like why the NWO's demands seem to keep getting more and more outrageous and why WCW keeps agreeing to them. And I think this whole thing about lying to Piper, uh, or lying about Piper to lure Piper out so that they could attack him, when you tie that into the god-awful Hogan promos I've complained about closing the show for the last few weeks, I think it actually really puts a nice little bow on it. I think that this part, this little twist here, I think was extremely well done. Um, as for the in-ring action, if you watch anything this week, I would say La Parca's debut against Juventud or the main event between Benoit and Guerrero. And of course, you do want to go back and see Bobby Eaton's fucking hair and outfit. Good Lord. Uh, this match does not have a rating on cage match because it only has four reviews, but it did pull a TV rating of 3.2. Meanwhile, over on the USA network, we are live from New Haven, Connecticut. Makes sense why they pulled the trigger on that Bischoff thing. We are one night removed from the 1996 survivor series with episode 185 of Monday night raw. Stone Cold defeats Mankind by disqualification, thanks to the Executioner. He is saved by The Undertaker. We are asked to buy the Tuesday replay of Survivor Series. We are shown an extremely wide shot of the crowd and are told that Ahmed Johnson is walking down through the crowd. The camera finally finds Ahmed, and he takes a seat in the crowd as Sonny enters. Oh, dear Lord, it's PG-13. The acclaimed slam of the week is Rocky Maivia's debut last night. Farouk pins Savio Vega, and then Ahmed Johnson cleans house. Ahmed gets the crowd to chant, you're going down, at Farouk. Vince calls it a capacity crowd, despite the tarped-off areas that are clearly visible on screen at that moment. Sonny defeats Bob Backlund in the Karate Fighters Holiday Tournament. Backstage, Sid pumps iron while wearing the WWF title. We get a photo recap of Jose Lothario faking a heart attack during last night's main event and Sid's subsequent victory, but make sure you order the replay so you can watch the finish we just described in its entirety. Vince expresses his disgust at Sid's actions last night and how Sean's actions show that he's actually a decent guy. He's a good human being. Furness and LaFon defeat Leaf Cassidy and Bob Holly. You can own a commemorative plaque featuring a piece of the ring rope from the WWF title match for just $59 plus $8 shipping and handling. In your main event, Jim Ross talks to Sid about his victory last night. The crowd cheers him despite him nearly killing a senior citizen. This episode of Raw has a 4.91 out of 10 on cage match and pulled in a TV rating of 2.4. Elsewhere in the world, on November 18th, 1996, it was the 33rd anniversary of the first push-button telephone going into service, making it so much easier for you to call the hotline and talk to me and Gene, 1-900-909-9900. Uh, also, Natalie Osman, who had a cup of coffee as Skylar Moon in NXT, turned 17. Not Ember Moon, Skylar Moon. That is it for 1996. Let's bring it back to 2019 so I can tell you that in the month of June, you can see me at Lucky Pro Wrestling in Clinton, Massachusetts on the 15th and with Atlantic Pro Wrestling as a part of Amesbury Days on June 29th. And hey, that's it for this episode. And the next episode, as we've said, 
is World War III. And you know what that means, folks? It is time to find out who will be joining me on the next episode to cover World War III and the next night's Nitro. Folks, this is a big one. In fact, and I'm not just talking about the Battle Royal. In fact, I can guarantee you, guarantee that this is, this will be the biggest episode of Nitromania that has ever been recorded. And I can tell you this with certainty, because not only will I have one person joining me next time, not only will I have two people joining me next time, episode 63 of Nitromania featuring World War III 1996 will feature all three members of the three-way theater podcast jc lumberjake and mike pava will sit down with me and for the first time ever my guests and i will all be in the same room at the time of recording uh which reminds me that i need to watch my assigned event for the next best in show appearance uh since we'll be recording that at the same time uh so until then ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening Become a patron at patreon.com slash rundownwrestling. Keep on visiting rundownwrestling.com for more fun content and to vote on hot people. And I will talk to you next time right here with the three dudes from the Three-Way Theater Podcast on Nitromania. Pull up your socks and get ready.